0: Hey, good morning. Hey, if you have your own Bible, dig in with me here in Hebrews chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there should be one in a little seat rack in front of you. It'll help to kind of have your finger on the text and your eyes on the page as we look at the text today. Uh, Just a couple of quick Christmas announcements. One in your bulletin, there should have been a little invitation card to our Christmas Eve service. Um, There's someone in your neighborhood, someone you work with, someone that you know is maybe going through a hard time this season, just encourage them to come. We'll sing songs, we'll read scripture, we'll light some candles, we'll remember that God sent his son for us. And then I want to encourage some of you tonight, whether you can sing or not, we're going to do some Christmas caroling over at a residence place nearby here. The address is also in the bulletin. Um, Come and sing. I'll be the worst singer there, so... Do you think you're worse, we could have a contest, um, but also just to bless some uh, residents here in Marion. So I want to pray for a time in the Word, and then we'll dig in to Hebrews chapter 3. Father, thank you for this Christmas season. Uh, thank you that we've been able to be in this book of Hebrews uh, that really holds out all of the truth and the uh, theology behind this baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago. Uh, that it wasn't incidental, and it wasn't a small affair, for this was the Son of God to come into the world. And uh, in so coming has changed everything. And that those who know him have life and hope, and those who don't know him remain without hope and without life in this world or the next. And so this is, these verses are of consequence, this passage is of consequence. And so we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, draw near to those who are not with us today, some in hospitals, some facing fighting COVID and other illnesses, uh, some just discouraged. Uh, and pray that you would draw near to them and draw near to us. We ask for your help now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, untreated heart conditions kill. Untreated heart conditions kill kill. Uh, Molly Schroeder uh, was a a 21-year-old soccer player at St. Norbert College. Uh, Like many days before, she got up one morning to go for a jog. She took in a few miles. She got back to her apartment. And then these are her words of recall of what was happening. She goes, I took in a big breath of air and I had an annoying pain in my chest that I could feel when I exhaled and it worsened. I could feel the blood in my face draining, too. I thought I was having an anxiety attack. Now, thankfully, Molly isn't like most people, because 80% of people who have uh, heart issues don't go to the doctor. Uh, But she rushed herself to the emergency room with a friend, and they discovered a 90% blockage in her artery. They later found out she had a congenital heart condition that has now forever changed how she eats even how she can exercise. Um, Now, before this happened, Molly looked as fit as every other woman on her soccer team. But below the surface, problems lurk. I want to connect her story to what we're seeing in the book of Hebrews. Uh, So we've been in this book several weeks. It's written by a concerned leader in the church, a pastor type, who's writing a pastoral letter to Christians that he knows and that he loves. Um, And in many ways, a lot of scholars will say that this is kind of a a sermon in written form. If you just turn to the, the last couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 13, I'll read verse 22. One of the last things he says in Hebrews 13, verse 22, he says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. What every pastor says at the end of his sermon could have said a whole lot more. But he calls it an exhortation, and an exhortation is a word of encouragement or a word of challenge. It's the sort of speech you know a coach gives before a championship game. And what this this caring churchman has become aware of some struggles, and so he writes this letter to exhort them to encourage them. It's a it's a book to encourage Christians press on. Now, as you read the letter, and as we read through the letter, you will see that overall, I think this pastor coach is hopeful for the people. He's confident, for the most part, that this church is going to be okay, that these believers are going to make it. And yet, he knows that looks can be deceiving. You can look the part, you can look fit and fiddle, but below the surface, your spiritual life can be a total mess. And so though though there's a level of confidence and hope, there's also just, there's several passages where there's a warning. Like, I'm hopeful, I'm confident that God is at work in you. But just in case, let's pause right now and let's look at the heart. Let's look at what's going on beneath the surface. And so he picks up and he pens this section, a section that I'm entitling, The Timeless Concern of Unbelief. And the idea that unbelief has happened in the past. Unbelief happens in the present. Unbelief can occur in the future. Unbelief plagues the church, plagues the lives of Christians. And so in many ways, this text is written primarily to Christians who are struggling with unbelief, doubt, fears. And it's not only a a passage for those who are following Jesus. It's also for those who have yet to follow Jesus or have yet to confess Jesus as Lord and begin to follow him. Uh, But I'm guessing maybe if you're, you know, some non-Christians might just kind of push back and be like, I don't know if unbelief's such a big deal. I'm not sure unbelief is, isn't unbelief harmless? You know, what's the big deal if someone doesn't follow God? Is there a big difference between an atheist, a Buddhist, or a Christian? Uh, These are legitimate questions, and in many ways I think this text is going to address some of those questions as well. I'll save my main idea for the end, but I kind of want to show you where where we're going. We're going to have three sections. So first thing I want to talk about is kind of the anatomy of unbelief. He kind of explains, what's the anatomy of unbelief? What's the composition? What are the parts that make up unbelief? Then he's going to move into some medicine for the soul, some medicine for unbelief. And then at the end, he's going to go back to this big theme. There's the timelessness of unbelief. So this first section, he's going to talk about the anatomy of unbelief. this This is a wise doctor of soul. If you've been an educator for a long time, uh, these teachers who've earned their teaching chops for a couple of decades, they have have a sense on when students are struggling. They see it maybe even sometimes before the students see it in themselves. And this is a pastor who knows people and he knows hearts and he's seeing things and there's concern that there's something under the hood that doesn't look right. And so he wants to teach us some truths about what is unbelief, where does it come from? Now, notice how he starts our section. Um, last week, we did verses 1 through 6. And if you recall, verses 1 through 6, it talked a lot about how Jesus is this one worthy of even greater honor than Moses. Right? Moses is the Superman of the Old Testament. And he's like, Jesus is even greater than Moses. And so similar to earlier parts of the book, uh, uh, what we're going to see in multiple occasions is there is a wooing and then a warning. So the wooing is in verses 1 through 6. He's trying to woo you to Jesus. He's greater than Moses. He's the builder of the house. He's the owner of the house. Trust him. Right. Verse 6, it says, have confidence in him. But after the wooing, then there's also kind of a warning. And the warning begins in verse 7. It begins first by just saying, so as the Holy Spirit says. I don't want to fly too fast from that introduction, just because I want you to realize that uh, one of the ideas baked into the Scriptures, baked into the Bible, is that we believe that the Word of God comes from the Spirit of God. He's actually quoting Psalm 95, and he could have said that, a psalmist says. He doesn't say a psalmist says. He doesn't say some dead Hebrew writer says. It doesn't say some Jewish poet says. He says the Holy Spirit says. So God speaks through the Scripture. In the next chapter of Hebrews, it says the word of God is living and active. And so now he, this first century pastor, is quoting uh, Psalm 95, which is probably like a thousand-year-old thing for him. And he's saying the spirit is speaking through this. Listen, audience. Listen, first century audience. Listen, 21st century audience. And then he quotes Psalm 95. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways So I declared on oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So what are some of the parts? What's the anatomy of this unbelief? Well, it begins by warning about, uh, first thing, sorry, is it says, watch out for this hard heart thing. Uh, But notice the central issue of belief is when, when God speaks. And so what is your response to God's word, right? His voice goes out into the world. We read in Psalm 19, his voice goes out in the world just by the earth and the heavens and the glory of God. It goes out. But more specifically, God's word has gone off through the likes of Moses and Samuel and David and the Apostle Paul. He's spoken through the scriptures. But so when you hear God's voice, we're supposed to yield to it, accept it, obey it. But unbelief lurks in the shadows. So, the first symptom or the first composition of unbelief, right? What what is this hardness? Verse 9. A hardened heart. He warns, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. So again, we have this writer, the original writer, is looking back a few hundred years. And he says, remember the time in the wilderness where God had brought the Jewish people out of Egypt through mighty uh, demonstrations of power and the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea? You remember, that generation got into the wilderness, and God even provided for that generation in the wilderness. He provided bread from heaven, and, and surprising uh, times when quail showed up, and he made water that was undrinkable, drinkable. Like All these times, he preserved them. But at one point, they got so rebellious, they said, God, we don't trust you. We are not going to follow you into the promised land. We'd rather go back to Egypt. They had these hard hearts in the wilderness. What is a hard heart? A hard heart, just here's my heart. The idea that the word is supposed to hit the heart and penetrate and get inside. That's the goal of the Word of God. It's just to hit our heart. It's going to the side. But what a hard heart does is it gets a little, the walls get a little thick, and they just push it out just a little bit. I'm not going to let it come in. Uh, you kind of like the words come and then you kind of hold it out at a distance. Lord, I'm not sure I want to hear that just yet. You just push it away just a little bit. Uh, the word of God comes and you kind of stop it and you look at it like. It's a strange piece of mail in your mailbox. Is this really for me? It, it doesn't take much of a hard heart to keep the word of God out. It just takes enough to just keep it out here. And that leads to the second part of unbelief. It says, the hard heart then leads to testing, right? So it didn't penetrate and pierce and start changing your life. Now it's out here and you start kind of being like, Ugh, what do I think about it? What do I think about this message from the living God? Like, what does he know about life or creation or morality or truth? not sure I want to listen to him. Maybe his stuff's kind of old school. And what it is, so the word stays on the outside, and you begin to inspect it like you're some sort of food expert. Right? Maybe take a nibble of it, like, right? Or if you're like a wine person, you take it in and do that weird sloshing thing, right? But not but then you gotta spit it out, right? So this is what's going on. You're testing you're keeping it at arm's length. You know, so so if, for example, in modern days, you might hear a scripture that comes much later in Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse four. It says, Marriage should be honored by all, the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That that word's coming at your heart. You kind of just push it. And then you set it out here and you start saying, I don't like the taste of this. The hard heart says, God, God can't tell me who I can sleep with or who I can't sleep with. And then next you, you kind of come up with excuses and scenarios that you think God should approve. Well, we do love each other. God shouldn't have made me this way if he didn't want me to feel this way. You know, the hard heart comes against commands of God about the caring of the poor, the welcoming of the immigrant, or the protecting of the unborn. Something gets close, we push it out just enough, and then we just start testing it. We find all these rational, thoughtful, human ideas on why this shouldn't go deep into my heart and change my life. So it starts with a hard heart, follows with testing, and then it moves to what it says in verse 10, we just then we go astray. It says, God got angry with that generation because their hearts are always going astray. And they have not known my ways. Right? So you didn't like the look of it. You didn't like the smell of it. And then you're like, then it's it's not going into my mouth. It's not going into my heart. It's not going into my life. I'm going to do my own thing, Right? So the word is supposed to come in, pierce us, change us, where we'd walk in with the Lord, but we reject it, and then we kind of go our own way. And that's why unbelief always leads to disobedience. Right? You're going to always do what you believe. So if you don't believe God's word is good, if you don't trust his promises, then you're going to trust someone else, something else. And you're going to go astray from God's word. Uh, And the thing that he warns, though, think about this, is that unbelief and disobedience together keep you from ever truly knowing God in his ways. Here's the thing. You can't really know the taste of honey without putting it on your mouth and swallowing it. In much of the way that you you can't know the goodness of God without obedience. That's how you know that God's word is sure. That's how you know that God is good is when you practice his word, when you receive it and live it out, then you're like, oh, wow. That's why the psalmist in the Old Testament says, taste and see that the Lord is good. A lot of people will hear God's word, and they'll say, oh, that would ruin my life. And so they leave it out here, they reject it, that, and then they don't. It's like, have you tasted God's word? Have you ever felt bad about living a generous life? Do you have any regrets about keeping promises? God's word is good. Note the final consequence of unbelief. Hebrews 3.11 says, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." God's anger, by the way, it's a settled position against evil. God never flies off the handle. He doesn't lose his cool. God has this settled opposition against evil. And he'll hold out mercy and opportunities over and over and over again. But he gets to a place where he says, okay, that's what you want. You can die. And that's what they did. They died in the wilderness. That's what happened to that generation. They had seen God's power, his salvation in Egypt. But their persistent unbelief led to their deaths in the wilderness. Nearly every person in an entire generation did not fail to receive the promised land because they didn't really want it. They didn't really want to follow God. So you have from a hard heart, then you test the word, then you wander from the word, and then you die separated from God. I wonder if you ever just spent some time just praying, meditating, like what are the consequences of unbelief? I think a lot of times if you come to church, uh, we try to explain the consequences of belief, right? The good things that happen when you believe. Peace, hope, life, joy. But have you ever taken a long look at where unbelief takes us? Go back to not believing what God says about sex and marriage. Is adultery good? Does that produce the kind of life? Is there any parent can is there any parent raising their child right now that hopes that when they get married one day that their spouse will cheat on their kid? Like we know the devastation of evil and sin. Like we know what happens when we lie. Like we see it in maybe the lies of others, but when it comes to us, remember, we get hard, we leave the word out here, we start kind of questioning it. We're just looking at our own lives, right? What about adultery now? How would it affect our kids and our spouses? Will it spark, will, will will adultery spark trust and love with my future mistress, right? Is that the way to build a marriage? This idea of unbelief leading to disobedience, leading to death, there's little versions of that, right? In this life where we see that our own unbelief and disobedience brings death to maybe some relationships or aspects of our life and then there's the idea of the eternal perspective that ongoing unbelief ongoing disobedience ends in eternal death we might not like you know we might dislike the bible's warning about greed but really has the pursuit of money ever made anyone happy right the bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil do we believe that we let that come in and kind of pierce our heart oh my goodness the human life is not made up of the abundance of his possessions or her possessions. There's, there's better life, right? Let that pierce our heart. So this pastor, he's looked long and hard at unbelief, and it sends chills up his spine. He doesn't want that first century church to walk away from the living God. Look at unbelief, meditate on it, realize where it's taking us. And then thankfully, there's some medicine for unbelief in this text as well. There's a prescription for the soul that's struggling with unbelief. We see it in verses 12 through 14, where he turns the corner and he says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As it has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Two repeated words. You probably caught them, right? Today and heart. Today and heart. So, our, the medicine for the soul has to do with things that we can do today. And the first prescription, I think, is this regular personal inventory of your own heart. Verse 12, it says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an unbelieving heart. Just see to it. And this is that, you know, every day, today, today, brothers and sisters, today, how's your heart? Are you believing the deceitfulness of sin? Is there a word from the Lord that's been hitting you over and over again for the last few days or weeks, but you have just not let it in? Sin is deceiving you. It's lying to you, saying there's more life over here. So there's this, this work in the individual heart. How am I doing? How is my soul Where am I wandering? And then the second medicine for the soul, so daily I'm looking at my heart, and then it says daily encourage other people's hearts. As long as it's called today, find someone else and encourage their heart. Prone to wander, our hearts are prone to leave the God we love. So how can we encourage someone else today? Today. We have so many different ways we can contact people today this week. So if you're the type of person that uses a to-do list or a planner, let me encourage you. Like on Monday, who should you text? On Tuesday, who should you call? On Wednesday, who will you write a handwritten note? On Thursday, who will you meet for lunch to encourage their heart? On Friday, who will you gather with in the evening to look at the Bible together? Right on Saturday, who will you send a Facebook message? On Sunday, what can you retweet to all of your followers that would encourage? Like today, encourage someone because our hearts are so prone to wander. But verse fourteen gives us some insight into the potent medicine that we need to encourage with. Like what? What kind of medicine? Not any old thing. It says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction. There's so much uh, juice in those few words. Ver- like, what what we need to encourage people? We need to encourage them with the beautiful promise, with deep conviction that we can share in Christ. What is Christmas about? Christmas is about God coming to rescue his people in the most surprising way possible. He came in vulnerability, he came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ because there was a we had a god problem because we had a sin problem. We rebel against God. We go our own way. We dislike God's law. We dishonor God's law. And so God sent someone who would represent us. That's one of the beautiful pictures of baptism. Jesus received baptism. What does that mean? As far as the baptism could express it, Jesus made all that was ours his. What do you say? When he's baptized, he's saying, I have come for all those who have been baptized. I'm going to represent this sinful people. I'm going to die for this sinful people. I'm going to live for them. And those who die with me, symbolized in baptism, will rise with me. Because Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, and three days later he rises again. So that all who believe in him, all who have been baptized with him, they share in Christ. Some of you have a rich uncle that you're hoping dies someday so that you can share in your uncle's riches. Be nice to him at Christmas. Now, but think about this. Jesus already died, and he already offers his inheritance to all who believe. You share his name. You share in his family. We looked about last week, two weeks ago, in Hebrews 2. It says, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. So when you're doing a heart inventory personally tomorrow morning, would you remember that you share in Christ because he came and he died for you? When you're encouraging someone, look at eye and be like, we share in Christ. There's no greater gift. There's no greater family. There's no greater wisdom. There's no greater life. Right? Woo them back to Jesus. Because we we all go astray thinking there's something better over here. We woo them back to Jesus. He is, He loves you. He's wise. He's good. Come back. To Jesus, so we've talked a little bit about the anatomy of unbelief, the medicine of unbelief. But he ends by war- just bringing up again the timelessness, and he repeats himself. This is not because he's uh, an old, you know, person who is losing his mind. He's repeating himself for emphasis. He quotes again Psalm ninety-five there in verse fifteen: "Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion." Then in verse 16, he says, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they are not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Why is he intentionally repeating himself? As he's saying, every generation is at risk of unbelief. Even the people who walked out of Egypt with Moses eventually doubted God's promises. Like like you, I've often thought, you know, if I could see a genuine miracle if I could see a clear, like this person wasn't walking, now they're walking, I would never doubt God. Or if I saw someone die and then be raised from the dead by the name of Jesus, I would never, ever doubt. That's exa- the, the, the people who walked out with Moses, they saw ten miraculous plagues. They saw the Passover where thousands of young boys died. They saw the part of the Red Sea. They saw water from rocks. They saw bread from heaven. And they began to doubt God. So the timelessness of unbelief is just the idea, we're all at risk. If they could stumble, so can we. And so we have to guard our hearts. By the way, it, it's when you start thinking about... Um, the church, which again, this is the original audience of this letter, right? we can look fit as fiddle on the outside spiritually and yet inwardly be struggling. I mean, that has all sorts of potential application. One, we probably need to be kind to one another and don't assume, we also probably need to be encouraging to one another. We also probably shouldn't say, well, they probably know better because we forget. And so how do we gently remind people of the goodness of God and the truthfulness of his word? How do we gently, it talks about in Galatians 6, gently going out to restore someone who is caught in a sin? You know, sometimes we sing the song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. There's a lot of truth in that song. Um, if I were to kind of reword it based on what I'm seeing here in Hebrews 3, it sounds something like this. Trust and obey. The offer is good for today. But if you don't, you'll die. Robert Frost, eat your heart out. The idea, though, I mean, this is some of the, like I said, there's a lot of wooing in the book of Hebrews, but then there's warning. Warning the idea that because God has made human beings and he's given them an ability to choose and those choices have consequences. But today, if you hear his voice, do not let your heart be hardened. Do not be led astray. So if God's calling you to break off some inappropriate relationship, cut it off today. If God is calling you to give back some money that you have taken in some sort of inappropriate way, we give it back today. If God has called you to forgive someone who has hurt you, forgive them today. If God has called you to give money in some direction and you sense the Lord leading, do it today. But if we harden our heart just for a second, then we begin to put God to the test. We will soon find ourselves strained. And strain leads in death. One of the good news of the Christian of the gospel is this, though, is that Jesus comes after those who stray. So if you're straying and you're still breathing, there's hope today. Like the author of Hebrews, I'm hopeful that many of the people in this room have soft hearts to God. I'm hopeful that you're holding firm to the conviction that you've originally had. I'm, I'm hopeful that you're gonna press on in faith. But he wasn't naive, and I'm not naive, because I know my own heart, to know that there's some days my heart wandered. And if you're wandering today, come back today. The grace is sufficient. God's love is immeasurable. Let me close with some hope, though. Look at verses one through three here in chapter 4. And we'll actually come back next week and spend more time in chapter 4. It says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you is found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest so our writer swings back to hope here in hebrews 4 and he says friends remember that today if you turn to the lord god and hear the good news there's rest for your soul right our greatest problem is not COVID or career disappointment (laughs) we have no rest for our souls because we've sinned against god We have no hope of a future because we've spurned the God who holds eternity in his hands. But the good news is that those who believe in Jesus enter into a rest with Jesus that starts now and gets better later. And so today, turn to your heart. One of the things I liked about that opening story about Molly Schroeder is her life changed 360 degrees after her diagnosis. She's actually now like a spokesperson for the American Heart Association. But every food she eats, every way she exercises, little monitors she has to guard her kind of precious heart, she's taken seriously. And it's given her extra years on life. She wanted to live, and so she changed. In many ways, that's what Hebrews 3 is saying. If you want to live, turn to the Lord. Trust and obey, for the offer is good for today. Let me pray. Lord, as we sang in uh, the early song, In the Bleak Midwinter, as that song closes, what can we give such an amazing Messiah, a Christ who is so gracious and good that he would come to die for his people? uh, The thing that we can give him is our heart. And so, Lord, we offer our heart to you. Lord, if there's people here uh, who haven't walked with God ever, maybe today is the first day they give their heart and say, God, I want to walk with you. Uh, Others of us have walked with God, and we are discouraged. Lord, would you minister to our heart? Others of us are feeling guilt and shame, Lord. We pray that uh, you would forgive our hearts and lead us into repentance. Thank you that there is an offer of rest today, and we want to respond to that offer. In Jesus' name, amen.